This is the J. Scott Outdoors podcast on Western big game hunting and fishing brought to you by GoHunt.com Insider. Research faster, hunt more. Go to GoHunt.com forward slash insider and join today. I'm your host, Jay Scott, and I live and breathe hunting and fishing, spending half the year in the field experiencing God's creation. I hope you'll enjoy hearing about our adventures. Guys, welcome to the podcast. Uh, I'm recording this episode on Wednesday, June 3rd, and the Arizona deadline for deer and sheep, uh, bighorn sheep, is uh, due, I believe, next Tuesday, um, June 3rd ninth and I'm in a predicament I've got 14 bonus points for deer and I've been wanting to hunt the Arizona strip with a rifle and the reality is uh, my chance to hunt the Arizona strip with a rifle may never come Um, there's uh, so many people ahead of me with more points and um, you know I'm just going to have to be fortunate to draw this tag for the rifle and um, this episode, we're going to talk with Matt Schimberg about archery strip hunting, uh, hunting 13A and 13B with the archery equipment. And um, although I am an archer, I would rather hunt the Arizona strip one time with a rifle and then apply for the archery uh, every hunt thereafter. Um, but if I apply for the archery strip tag and draw the tag, um, you know, I probably will never have a chance to draw the rifle tag unless it's just, you know, completely random. So that's the dilemma I'm in right now. I'm actually recording this episode. Um, we we arrived in our place in Colorado up here in the Roaring Fork Valley uh, near Carbondale, Colorado. And I'm overlooking uh, the Roaring Fork River here and um, it's chocolate milk. Um, it's come up a thousand CFS in, in two days. And um, actually, uh, the last couple days, I ran over to uh, Flaming Gorge and stayed at the Flaming Gorge Resort there um, in Utah and uh, went fishing with a friend of mine, Danny and Eldine. And um, the cicadas uh, were just getting started over there, and we did catch some fish on cicadas. Um, but I've seen it better. It was um, the flows, I want to say, were down around oh, 1,500 CFS. The water was clear. They had just done their uh, spring flush. Um, the fish looked very healthy. Um, uh, we had pretty good conditions, uh, but I just think the cicadas, they were in the first two miles of the A section. And then as we got further down the river, um, the fish were a little bit more picky. So here in another couple weeks, I think once the um, cicadas have a chance to really emerge and um, take hold, I think we'll head back over there and, and make another trip. Um, I want to thank you guys um, for all your support of this podcast. Um, quite honestly, the response has been just completely overwhelming. Um, I get so much feedback on email. Uh, if you want to send me an email, jscottoutdoors at gmail.com. Uh, just get incredible responses on the email. Um, get great reviews on iTunes. If you haven't given us a, a, a rating or review, you can go on iTunes, give us a five-star rating, and and give us some positive comments. Um, just had some incredible feedback. Um, I get text messages every day. Uh, I get emails. I get phone calls, and you know, quite honestly, it's just uh, it it's 
It's very, very uh, overwhelming. Uh, it's humbling. I uh, just want to thank you guys for all of your support that that you know you guys show to to me and and this podcast. And uh, if if you don't know, um, we have an Instagram page, uh, J Scott. You can follow it at J Scott Outdoors. Um, I associate Dar Colburn, um, D-A-R-R-C-O-L-B-U-R-N. Um, you can follow on our Facebook page, J Scott Outdoors. Uh, you can. We have a great YouTube channel. I believe we have. 1430 subscribers and we have a million four or five views now and a lot of our hunts and um and a lot of our adventures are on our youtube channel and we've had it going i want to say since 2008 or 9 so there's a lot of stuff um even back from uh from years ago um that you guys might find um interesting and i just want to thank you guys for all your support and I'm going to really make an effort here this summer to put the pedal down on this podcast and uh, try and bring the best content that I can. I know we're all getting excited for the upcoming seasons. Uh, I've got an archery elk hunter in Unit 9. Uh, he's from Oregon, and I'm just really excited for Unit 9 this year. Uh, the moisture is looking like the timing has shaped up that it's going to be a phenomenal year. Uh, for antler growth, uh, both for deer and for elk. Um, so I'm excited to get back into Unit 9 and and um, chase some bugling bulls. And uh, I want to hear from you guys, uh, hunts that you guys have going. Send me an email. Um, send me a message through Facebook or Instagram. Um, and so on this podcast, we're just going to really dive into all of our Western big game hunting uh, we're going to have uh, quite a few fly fishing episodes and some other fishing episodes as well. But uh, we're all getting prepared. The summertime is is when we, uh, you know, get fired up. We're shooting our bows, shooting our rifles, um, you know, exercising and getting ready for fall season. So um, I want to go over a few uh, reviews here that we've gotten on iTunes. And like I said, the you know, the response is just been overwhelming uh here's a response love the podcast keep it going um uh keep them coming here's another one nice nice to hear a podcast focused on western hunting great local info um that guy 33 says love the show keep it coming uh jb 2012 says uh very good information lots of great tips for guys looking to start hunting big game in the west i look forward to each episode um let's see there's more here uh uh hunt smith films excellent well-rounded group who are passionate about what they do um J jd says i've been a big fan of dar and jace for quite a few years love the content and interviews keep it up um it's uh ty dominguez get your notebook out and get after it i'm an alcoholic and love learning new tactics um, so just some awesome feedback um, from you guys, the listeners. I really appreciate it. Uh, we, we have had some, uh, for Ty Dominguez here, obviously we've had some unbelievable uh, uh, elk episodes with uh, Corey Jacobson on Elk Calling and Steve Chappell and Brendan Burns and Casey Brooks and, um, you know, just, just had some, some great episodes on elk hunting. 
And I'm going to uh, make it a point here to really put the pedal down and keep some great stuff coming. We have some, I already have recorded some great episodes and can't wait to share them with you. Um, so guys, just thank you out there. And I look forward to, to uh, diving into this episode on the Arizona Strip. And until next time, guys, God bless. Welcome to the J. Scott Outdoors podcast. Today we have a very special guest. We have Matt Schimberg of A3 Trophy Hunts. And Matt has been with us uh, before on the podcast uh, with his partners, Jay Lopeman and Chad Roten. And in that podcast episode, we talked a lot about Arizona elk and Arizona deer. Today, specifically, we're going to talk with Matt uh, with A3 about the archery deer hunt on the strip in units 13A and 13B. Those are two hunts that uh, I have my eye on. I have 14 points, and uh, I think as cor according to the odds, uh, I have a pretty much a guaranteed chance to draw the archery hunt, uh, although I'm probably going to continue to put in for the rifle. It is something that, uh, that I, I struggle with uh, looking at. Um, I can't wait to pick Matt's brain today to see what maybe he would do with the 14 points. Uh, I have a feeling I know what Matt would do, but uh, let's get into it. Uh, Matt, how are you doing today? I'm doing good, Jay. I'm doing good. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. Uh, let's talk first about uh, what do the conditions look like on the strip and and uh, the moisture levels and such compared to other years. How do you see it shaping up? Well, it is shaping up to be uh, a year to remember, I'm confident. Um you know, it all started last year with the with the fantastic monsoon season that we had that got everything the deer in the country as healthy as it could be, then through a mild winter and then uh you know, we did have some some moisture in the late winter, early spring, but here about the last month we've just had a you know, a an enormous amount of rain that's actually very unseasonable. It's uh you know, Arizona, northern Arizona usually dries up about the end of April and then it's pretty pretty dry and droughty and windy through May and June and then it starts back up <clears throat> excuse me um you know first of July but we've got uh oh they say it's the El Nino weather pattern on us that you know that ocean's warmed up off the Pacific coast and it's got that jet stream coming right across right across Arizona with uh a lot of moisture in the air so we've been having all kinds of thunderstorms and um it's amounted to you know, three or four rains per week for about the last month across all of that strip country up there, which uh, is really the perfect the perfect recipe. And Matt, for those of of the listeners that that don't really know, uh, Arizona and and specifically the Arizona Strip, uh, well, Arizona in general, uh, the whole state, we rely pretty much on our monsoonal moisture, which we get a ton of our moisture in you know, like you said, the beginning of July, usually 4th of July through, you know, September. And then really the only other time that we get moisture is kind of in our, uh, you know, December, January, February months. And like you right. said, I mean, typically April, May, and June are our driest months. So with, with what you're saying in the last month and a half with having lots of moisture and timely storms, you know, a couple storms a week, um, do you anticipate that the antler growth, uh, that nutritionally, that the deer will just be feeling that much better and that they will be at absolute maximum capacity on the, on the antlers? Or is there any variable that you think may keep them from being at, at complete top max form? You know, I expect them to be 
about as close to max form as they can possibly possibly get. I think it's it's equally as due to the you know to the fantastic um, you know second half of last year, which I think is just as equally as important as all of the moisture that we're receiving now. Um, you know those deer bounced out of the rut almost immediately. They went through a very mild winter um, with just you know, the browse was just unbelievable going into last fall. So they came, you know, they came into the spring shedding their horns in good body condition. And then just to have, you know, to have this early green up and this continued moisture that, uh, that has just brought that green on hard and heavy. I, I don't see how it can be anything besides, besides, you know, as close to as good as it gets as we get out here anyway. How do you feel like the holdover bucks um, from last year as far as I know you guys killed some giants um, last year, but how do you feel the new crop is coming into, I guess my point is, do we have a real good, you know, bumper, you know, great crop of bucks that given the right conditions could blow up or do you feel like just an average crop of bucks? No, I, I think that the crop of bucks that is coming up is, uh, is exceptional. Um, we did kill some big bucks last year, but we know of even more bucks that lived. Um, the 13B, 13B, aside from 13A, is is already in incredible condition as far as young bucks coming up the ladder. Um, there is no shortage of great young deer coming up in 13B. <clears throat> and, you know, combine that with with the moisture that we've got plus the you know, the bucks that we already know are big that, that lived last year, and there's going to be, there's going to be, a, I think, a slightly abnormally large number of big deer to, to choose from, so to speak, this year. That's awesome. Matt, let's talk a little bit about 13A and 13B and some of the differences. If you would, first, uh, give me kind of the rough boundaries of 13A so people can kind of have an idea what separates A and B geographically. Yeah, the the boundary between A and B is a uh, it's basically starting on the north end, the Utah the Utah bound uh, border. It's it's a big rim they call the Hurricane Rim. That's pretty much just runs straight south. That divides 13A and B. It's just a huge elevation change, just like a big step up. It's a big rim, similar to like the Mogollon Rim. Um, that runs straight south, right on down through the middle there. Um, and then that rim will intersect a, uh, a main dirt road that's called the Mount Trumbull Road um, that drops. That road comes off of the rim from 13A down into 13B. And where that road intersects the rim, the, uh, the unit boundary then becomes the road. And the main road is continues southbound. That is the boundary. And then where that main road crosses what they call Cold Springs Wash, then it's the wash bed that becomes the actual boundary between 13A and B. And then where Cold Springs Wash joins Whitmore Wash, then it's uh, the, the boundary between the two units is Whitmore Wash, continuing southbound down to the uh, Grand Canyon National Park boundary. Okay. And then uh, 13A on the, on the east end goes over to close to Fredonia, is that right? And then over there by... Uh... Um, what's the, what's the east boundary there? Uh, the east boundary is what they call Kanab Creek, which is a drainage okay. that, uh, yeah, pretty much comes, comes right out of Fredonia more or less. And, 
you know, head straight south and join the Grand Canyon, and that's the uh, the east side boundary of 13A. And then the west side of 13B is uh, what St. George, Utah, and the Virgin River Gorge, and then dropping all the way down to the south there. Yeah, it's a, the the west boundary is actually the uh, the Nevada state line is the whole western boundary, um, and the northern the northern boundary is the Utah line. Okay, and Matt, uh, guys that are going to be drawing 13A and 13B, both on the archery and on the rifle, let's say some of the guys that uh, can't afford a guide, um, what are some of the uh, places that are closest to, you know, um, gas, uh, food, lodging, et cetera? Say, let's, let's start with 13A, maybe talk about some of the entry points there, and then also jump into 13B and give me some of the rough entry points where there may be closest gasoline, uh, closest tire service, you know, that type of thing. Yeah, starting on the starting on the east side, on the northern end of 13A, you have the small town of Fredonia, which is also pretty much conjoined to Panab, Utah. Um, and they have got anything that anybody would need from gas to groceries to auto repair, tire repair, um, pretty much about everything that you need. they got a limited... A limited supply of sporting goods, but uh, but pretty much everything you need: hotels, motels. Um, so going going west from Fredonia, the next and there's a point of entry just uh, just west of Fredonia. There's a main point of entry going down into uh, into 13A. Um, it's the main. It's actually what they call part of the Mount Trumbull Loop Road, um, but it's a main dirt road southbound going into 13A. But if you continue on on the highway from Fredonia going west, the next town you would come to is Colorado City. Um, Colorado City has got a little bit less than uh, than Fredonia Canab. They do have groceries, gas, tire, and auto repair, but uh, on a little smaller scale yet. Um, and motels are scarce there. But uh, there's another there's another main point of entry uh, southbound out of Colorado City that uh, shoots you straight down into 13A. Um, continuing westbound from Colorado City, between there and, and what they call Hurricane, Utah, there is a couple points of entry there that are not as uh, not as common. Roads are a little smaller. Kind of gets you into 13A, still above the Hurricane Rim. Um, and we'll get you into some other parts of 13A and, and different routes down in there. And then you... Uh, Continuing west from from those points of entry, you drop into Hurricane Utah, and uh, Hurricane Utah sits just a little ways just a little ways east of St. George. And St. George is uh, you know it's a fairly large town. It's got everything everything you could ever need, and then some from you know from Sportsman's Warehouse to Walmart to to uh, everything that you would, could possibly need, you can find there. And you would say St. Saint, Saint George, out of all those towns, probably has absolutely the most commercial services there. Yeah, without a doubt, it is. Uh, it's a it's a fairly major. It's a fairly major metro area, um, largest largest uh, city in the in southern Utah. Um, yeah, it's got everything that you need. You know, mo- all the all the main hotel chains are there, motel chains. All the restaurant chains, grocery store chains, you know, all your big, 
all your big box stores, Walmart's, Home Depot's, and they've even got a sports and warehouse. And for the people that uh, draw that tag, give give me an idea, for instance, when you go to camp, uh, how many gallons of gas do you typically have in camp or with you um, in your truck, so to speak? How, how many, um, you know, tires do you go through a season? Um, you know, I, I've heard of guys going to the strip before with a five-gallon gas can and one spare tire, and, and I just shake my head. Give me right. some of it. Some advice from someone like you on, on you know, numbers of, of flat tires, what you should expect as far as, uh, you know, driving around and what have you. Yeah, you know, it, it, it obviously depends on how much country you guys plan on covering. We cover a lot. Um, you know, when I, leave, when I leave town and drive onto the strip, I seldom have less than 40 gallons of gas with me um, in five-gallon cans. I don't... I don't and- that's on top of your tank being full. You take another 40 gallons minimum with you. Yeah, I do. I do because I, I, I like to go down there and not come back. When I come back, I'm, I'm usually headed home. Um, so I like to go down in there for 10 days or two weeks at a time. And, uh, and I, like to, I like to have my gas in five-gallon cans where, you know, we, we do ride quads a lot. We, you know, we use side-by-side machines a lot, so I like to be able to take five or ten gallons and put it you know, strap it to my quad or put it in the back of my side-by-side and be able to haul it around handy that way. Um, and as far as tires go, you know, I really don't suffer from a lot of flat tires up there, mainly because I uh, I keep good tires on my truck of varying brands. And when I say good, I mean in good condition. I don't run, you know, I change my tires out before they get to be worrisome or problem-causing. And then, and then I really don't, drive my truck all that much once I'm down there. Once I'm down there, I'm usually I'm usually mounted on a quad or side by side and I do, you know, ninety percent of uh of anywhere running around this and that on either a quad or a side by side. Matt, what what unit let's compare A and B a little bit. First off, let's let's talk about the geogra- geographic size of each unit and how they compare. Next, let's um, dive into uh, the bucks, and we're talking specifically about the archery hunt. Compare the 13A and B archery hunt. Right. So, uh, so geographically, 13B is is larger than 13A. Um, 13B is is deer habitat from north to south and from east to west. The entire unit holds deer. Um, 13A, on the other hand, is uh, on top of being a smaller unit, there's a good portion of 13A that holds that holds no deer, um, which is basically the the whole center part of the unit is uh, is more or less just open grassland, antelope type type country that uh, really holds no deer. Um, I, I you know I've seen deer passing through it in years past, but as far as huntable numbers of deer or or anything resident out there, there's really nothing. So so the deer habitat in 13A is more concentrated. Um, so overall, you know, just looking at it from the amount of deer habitat, you know, 13A has really got only about a third of the deer habitat in it that uh, that 13B does. So it's pretty heavily weighted to the 13B side that way. And then, so numbers of deer, I would assume there's quite a bit more in 13B, and then with the numbers of deer, obviously you're going to have more 
probably big bucks and B as a general rule of thumb if you if you uh went and just gathered every deer up you'd probably have twice as many deer in B and then you'd probably have twice as many big bucks is that a safe assumption yeah i think that is uh is pretty accurate you know there's there's been years in the past when when 13a um kind of overshadowed B as far as what was harvested you know in a particular season but on average you know year to year yeah you're i think you're uh you're pretty correct there. You're going to you're going to have a lot more deer overall and a lot more big bucks to choose from in 13B. And I I believe I don't have the regs in front of me, but I believe there's 30 archery tags in in B and and 25 in A. Um how does the hunting pressure compare on the archery hunt from unit to unit? Um it's actually quite different. It's uh you know 13A for all the reasons I just listed. Um, you know, the deer are more concentrated and, and hence are the hunters. So both the archery and the rifle hunts in, uh, in 13A are usually as a rule, not always, but usually there's, there's more competition for the bucks that we're after. Um, you know, we occasionally find some bucks in 13A that, uh, are kind of out in the fringe country or kind of out in some of the ugly ugly nasty stuff that nobody really wants to go mess with um but as a you know as a rule yeah hunting hunter, hunting pressure is is usually quite a bit more more uh severe in 13a than b and 13b does have its areas where uh where the pressure is is concentrated there's you know there's a there's a, a number of names that are popular that uh that people just go scout and hunt just based on on reputation and uh stories and, and things right here so there's there's areas in 13b where where the hunter pressure can be uh can be pretty darn severe as well but there's a lot of country in 13b that a guy can uh can get off and away and find him a big old buck to hunt and and in a lot of cases be you know be the only one hunting it um you know or or, or see very few people Yeah, and and how much of that um where you decide to put your clients um map? Well, I guess first of all, first of all, do you guide both A and B? Do you typically have as many hunters in in B as you do in A or or is it is it vary from year to year? And how do you uh what is your main style of of scouting in order to figure out where to put your clients um year in and year out on those bucks? Right. Um as it pertains to the archery hunt, we usually have we usually have two to three archers per unit. Usually two. Um, there's been years in the past where we've had three. The uh, you know the tags are so limited on the archery hunt that there's just not a you know there's just usually not a lot of uh, we just don't get a lot of a lot of calls for the archery hunt just because the tag numbers are so low. Um, so it's usually two to three in each unit for the archery hunt. Um, you know the main tactics that we use to scout are you know we obviously use we use trail cameras to you know as as much as we can um but our, our probably our biggest our biggest scouting weapon is just man hours on the ground and that's you know that's myself that's some of these these guys that work with us that that it's literally our full-time job up there all summer um you know we live there and we you know we just follow these bucks around we glass for them we uh 
you know, we spotlight for them at night legally. Um, we track them. We, we do really whatever we can. You know, we used to, uh, we used to fly years past. We used to fly to scout. We've, uh, we stopped doing that. You know, the laws are, the, the game and fish regulations are, are fairly, re- fairly restrictive now. And then combined with the new elk seasons that they have up there, um, for the little budding elk herd that's going on up there, um, the windows to fly are, are greatly reduced. And, uh, you know, it's really almost more trouble than it's worth. So that's something that we've kind of given up on. But, uh, so our greatest scouting weapon is man days on the ground, which, uh, you know, there's never a substitute for that. And in years like this, where we're receiving all this rain and, uh, you know, and according to the, to the, uh, you know, the forecast, this rain is going to continue right on through the, right on through the summer and right on through the fall, they say, this El Nino pattern. And, uh, and if that's the case, I mean, if we, if we go through, you know, if we go all the way through July, August and and it's still raining, you know, two, three, four times a week, and the country and the feed is so lush and green and there's pocket water everywhere. I mean, you just as well, you know, you just as well leave your cameras in the garage because they're not going to do you, you know, they're going to be almost all but worthless. Um, most deer just have absolutely no reason to come to established water when, when the country's got healthy and wet. And, uh, you know, trail cameras will be of little use. So, so you know, days on the ground with uh, – with manpower is our greatest weapon as far as scouting goes. Matt, you brought up something about uh, continuous rain, and and I know that uh, that one of the biggest challenges with the archery hunts on 13A and 13B is the fact that, you know, if there's there's pocket water and pothole water all over, they don't have to come to your water sources where your hunters are sitting. Um, In years past, how long does it usually take uh, you know, because it can be viciously hot during that time of year. Would you say if it stopped raining for a week, I mean, would the deer come right back to the waters or, you know, three days or what does it usually take to, and I know it depends on the size of the rain and what have sure. you, but a general general rule of thumb is, you know, how much does it have to dry out for those deer to get back on their pattern? You know, if it, if it, if it quits raining for a week, you know, in July, August, you'll see those deer start coming back to water. Um, yeah, about a week. I think that's pretty accurate, you know, but it doesn't take much to, you know, it doesn't take much of a storm to knock them back off. And, and you know, a large part of it is, uh, is the condition of the forage. If the forage, you know, if the rain has been ongoing for a long period of time and the forage is, is, is lush and rich with moisture and the mornings are dewy and moist, um, all those things can, can keep, you know, can keep beer from coming back to water for longer periods of time. So there's some more factors that come into it than just that, but just, you know, as a, you know, a week of, of hot, stagnant weather will usually get them deer showing back up. So as a guide and as a hunter, uh, you want it to rain like crazy up until about, what, 10 days before the hunt starts, the archery hunt starts, and then you would just assume for, if you had a tag or if you were guiding someone, you would just assume it shut off 10 days before the hunt and then it not rain a single drip until the, the hunt's over with. It. And in that case, if it dried out, is it uh, is that archery hunt just off the charts? 
you know, it has the potential to be off the charts. Um, but here's a funny fact for you is that we have not killed, we have not killed an archery buck off of water since 2011. And, uh, you know, it's, we're very leery of, of depending on sitting water too much because for one, um, we've been blessed the last few summers to have really good monsoon seasons. And, uh, and that just, you know, that just shoots all kinds of holes through the water sitting plan, obviously, like we just talked about, but also, you know, a lot of these best bucks and the ones that we want to harvest, um, you know, water more at night than they do during the day, you know, and if, and if you've, if you've been, you know, following that buck all summer, so to speak, and have no record of him watering in the daylight, um, it obviously makes no sense to sit water no matter how dry it is. So, so we kind of just tailor each, you know, we choose the bucks that we want to hunt and, uh, you know, and there's a lot that goes into that as well, but, uh, you know, so, but we never, if we can sit water for them and we think we can kill them that way, absolutely. We will sit water. Um, but more often than not, we wind up having to go and, and spot that thing and stalk him and, and kill him out there on the ground somewhere versus sit in the water. Just that's just the way it played out for us combined with, uh, you know, with the, wet monsoon season that we've been having it's just made you know water hole sitting overall just pretty doggone slow and and with that with um water hole sitting being slow and with not having harvested an archery buck since 2011 sitting water i've heard that the bucks that when they're in velvet and they're out there that they are quite a bit more docile obviously than when they go hard antlered um talk to me about the stocking situation and conditions and you know, if, if you bump a buck, is he gone? Can you usually relocate him? Uh, talk about some of the some of the strategies with stalking and, you know, how aggressive do you get and do you worry about bumping and, and have you seen circumstances where they just go, you know, go bye-bye or do they typically circle back and, you know, the next day they're, they're, you can find them off those same type of knobs or something? Right. Um, yeah, I mean, we... Uh... You know, in, in a perfect situation, everybody wants to climb up on the knob and and glass the buck up in a in a real stockable area and, and slip on down there and arrow him or watch him bed somewhere where you can, you know, have a spotter on the hill and, and have all day to, to work and do your deal. And it's, you know, it really seldom does it work out that way, um, mainly because there's just a lot of thick country on the strip and those deer, you know, they'll they bed in thick spots where oftentimes you can't watch them all day. Um, so when they hit the cover, they get away from you, so to speak. And uh, so we're pretty doggone aggressive in our, in our stalking tactics. We, uh, you know, we get right after them. We don't, we don't push, you know, situations that are just grossly not in our favor, um, you know, because we don't want to, we don't want to bump a big old deer that we're trying to kill if there's only a 5% chance we're going to get a shot at him anyway. But, but we do push it probably more than, more than most, um, to get shot opportunities just because, you know, when we're, when we're hunting with these guys, I, I've, you know, I've always, I always hear that clock ticking in the back of my head and, and <laughs> countdown. I mean, from, from opening day on day one, the clock is ticking at the countdown and it's, you know, if you see if you see that buck and you get 
you get a visual on him, which, you know, can be a luxury in itself, a lot of these big old bucks, um, you know, you need to do everything you can to, to make a, create an opportunity out of that. And, uh, so we're not overly cautious. Um, you know, we don't do a lot of, you know, back out and come back tomorrow or wait till we find them in a better spot. You know, we'll, we'll get right after them, but we, you know, again, we don't, we don't push situations that are completely hopeless. Um, and then one thing that keeps us on deer up there or keeps us on the bucks that we want to kill, even if we bump them, inevitably we, uh, you know, we bump these deer around and they're hard to kill with a bow. They're hard to stock with a bow and usually it takes, you know, can take multiple tries. So we do a lot of tracking, um, you know, during the, during that archery hunt time, it's obviously hot. It's August, early September. And, uh, you know, if you jump a buck or bump a buck that time of year, um, you know, they, they don't generally travel as far as a lot of guys think they do. Um, they, they rely more on on hiding than they do traveling to get away. Um, so, you know, if we bump a buck, we'll, we'll get on his tracks and we'll follow his tracks until we have a reasonable idea of where he is again. If we can glass him back up, we will. Um, you know, we, so we'll, you know, if we track him from across two canyons and we, you know, we find a patch of trees where, where his tracks go into, you know, and we can't find him. We might make the circle, the whole thing, see if he left. And we just keep narrowing down this piece of country where he's at. And, uh, you know, it's just kind of a, the, you know, the, the true cat and mouse game. Just, we don't, we get after him pretty hard. Um, you know, so as many times as you bump them, they leave just as many tracks and tracks are, are a lot bigger key than a lot of guys realize. Sure. Absolutely. Um, that's good stuff. Um, how many guides do you roughly have working for you in the summer? So, you know, someone that's going to book an archery hunt, you know, is it one-on-one or do they usually have, you know, do you have two or three guides that are out looking for one guy or what's, what's usually the ratio? You know, we usually, like we talked earlier, we, we will usually have two, two hunters, sometimes three. All of our hunts are one-on-one. Um, guided by the same guys that do the scouting through the summer. And, uh, and then during the hunt time, we usually have a couple of, uh, a couple of friends or, or whomever they might be that come up and just kind of assist and glass and help us spot. And, and, uh, you know, usually, usually glass, try to get a different angle and help us that way. Um, so all of our hunts are one-on-one with usually a couple of guys kind of floating around helping out. Gotcha. And how many bucks, or, or let's ask this question, uh, what's the largest buck that you've taken, a client has taken with a bow and arrow uh, under your guide service? Under our guide service, the largest buck that somebody has killed on the archery hunt is uh, is 229 and 5.8, and, and it's a buck that just obviously just missed 230 by by fraction. Um, but he was what he was. He was 229 and change, so that's the... Uh, that's the largest buck we've killed on the archery hunt up there. We killed that buck in 2013, I believe. Um, in, in A or B? We killed him in B. Killed him in B. And and um, uh, how many bucks over 200 uh, will you know of, say, if, if things continue the way they are, how many 200-plus buck, inch bucks in A and how many in B to give me kind of a, a – you know, a, a difference in the two units. What would be your ballpark figure on how many 200 plus inch bucks you you will know about? Right. Um, well, it's probably going to, 
there's going to be some people that are going to blow the whistle on me here, but uh, in 13 days, <laughs> we'll probably know of between 15 and 20 bucks that will gross over 200 this year. This is just my prediction, obviously. Sure. Um, in and, and, and it's never really a fixed number. It's just what what do you go off of with your gut? Yeah. So 15 right. or 20 in A. 15 or 20 in A, and I, I would not be surprised at all if we're you know if if we find 35 or 40 bucks that'll gross over 213 B this year. And what do you feel like will be the biggest grossing deer out of either unit? I mean, maybe not even killed. What would you say if you said, hey, uh, yeah, you know, guys know about this buck, and I wouldn't surprise me if he went. What's that number? You know, I I think that uh, combining both the combining both the units, you know, and and keeping it. Keeping it realistic, I think that there will be a couple of bucks north of 260 this year. <laughs> Good night. That granted, is incredible. Granted, the uh, granted, there you know a lion hadn't killed him, <laughs> which sure. is always a possibility. Sure. Um, Matt, why are there coming from someone that uh, I've been to the strip just a couple times, um, but. You know, I, I have very limited knowledge up there, but you hear so many stories about the strip and, and horror stories, quote unquote. And uh, why why does that area produce that type of, of banter or chatter, so to speak? What's your take on that? Um, and I'm going to assume that you're talking about, about guys that go up there and, and have disappointing hunts. Yeah, I mean, you hear about guys talking about, you know, fights over water holes and, you know, right. uh, g- guides that think they own the country and, you know, just, just stuff. What's your general um, feeling on why that happens? You know, if I had to take a guess at that, I would think that, that your average do-it-yourself hunter that finally draws his strip archery tag and goes up there um, – is put and starts scouting around, you know, he gets his maps, he locates some water sources. He starts, he starts, you know, getting out and around and scouting. Um, you know, the strip is an extremely competitive place. You know, it's, it's the best deer hunt on the face of the planet. I mean, there's not one better anywhere and, uh, and everybody knows it. And, uh, so, so it's extremely competitive, not only amongst just the do it yourself guys that draw tags, but also the outfitting services up there. Um, you know, everybody uses trail cameras in this day and age. And, uh, you know, so you're, so you're doing yourself guy that heads up there and starts scouting around, starts looking at some of these waters and, and, and pulling up and seeing, you know, multiple cameras on every water and, uh, and, and lots of guys out and around and, and blinds that show up on water holes, you know, ridiculously early before the hunt starts. Um, you know, as it pertains to the archery, and I think that probably has a lot to do with it. They kind of feel like, you know, Jiminy Christmas, how do I, you know, where do I go? How do I fit into this? And how, you know, how do I compete with this? And that's, you know, with hunters that I have talked to up there during the course of the hunts that are, you know, that are disappointed or, or, or the hunt's not going the way they wished it would, um, that's usually, that's usually a large part of it is that, you know, people take these hunts extremely seriously for obvious reasons and uh, and put an enormous amount of time and effort into them. And I think a lot of guys are unprepared for that when they get there. Um, 
and I think that probably has a lot to do with people that have, you know, disappointing stories. Um, Hunt doesn't go the way they wish. I think another part of it is that people, people will get a false impression of what that place is like, um, you know, due largely in part to all the press that it gets and the magazines that got all these bucks in them. And, you know, even guys like me that are, that are, you know, touting how many bucks over 200 that there's going to be, they get this impression in their mind that, you know, okay, I drew my tag. I mean, I, I'm going to go up there and, you know, choose what buck I want. And, you know, the rest of this is easy and it's nothing could be further from the truth. Um, you know, that place is gigantic. That country is huge. Um, you know, even if there is, you know, 40 bucks that gross over 200 on 13B, you know, those zero will be spread out through a piece of country that's, you know, very close to a hundred miles long north to south and 35 or 40 miles wide. So it's, uh, so they're well dispersed. They're not nearly as easy to find as a lot of people think they are. Um, you know, more and more people use cameras these days. So, you know, even the do-it-yourself hunters, so they'll put their cameras up. They will get pictures of these big old bucks. Um, but still, that is that is just a small piece of the puzzle. I mean, virtually anybody can go put up a camera and get pictures of these deer, and people do. But finding them and killing them with a bow is a whole, you know, entirely another another uh, venture. So I think probably all those factors sure. probably come into play sure. as far as people having a, a nightmare type scenario. Absolutely. And Matt, right now, what are the bucks? I mean, are they just getting to their G2s or where, where are they at in their horns, their antler structure right now? Yeah, they're just, you know, they're, they'll be between their eye guards and their G2s right now. You know, they'll have, you know, the big ones will be, you know, have 10 or 12 inches of horn out their head. Um, you know, the younger bucks will have five or six inches out their head growing, you know, obviously growing fast every day, but you know, it won't be, it won't be but another, another 10 days or so. And pretty much everything will be forking, you know, forking off the G2s and starting to, starting to pack it on. When do you get, first of all, how many trail cameras do you run on average? Um, and when do you, when will you put the cameras out? Are they already out? When will they be in full force? If if they're not already out, um, we've got some of them out already. Um, the rest of them will be out in uh, in full force um, by about June fifteenth. And you know the numbers of cameras that we run it varies it varies greatly from year to year, mainly because uh, there's years when a lot of the uh, you know the dirt tanks, the dirt cattle ponds have got water, the potholes have got water, and then there's a lot of years that they don't. So it can vary by by uh by quite a by quite a margin um you know we we run a lot we uh you know on on 13b we'll run oh roughly about 100 um some years more uh, on 13a um you know roughly about 80 some years more yeah okay and then do you notice throughout the summer uh is there a time when those deer just kind of change their pattern i mean obviously because of the rain but is there anything else that will cause those deer to change their pattern such as you know big big fourth of july weekends or things where people are up there moving around do you actually see those deer changing or do they just come in at night and and they're still right there yeah i mean there's at least in my experience there's um 
there's very, very little that actually makes a deer change location, um, you know, outside of like the rut. But, uh, but, you know, so, so people pressure, um, I mean, there's some areas in, in 13A, you know, there's a, there's an area in 13A, the Mount Logan area. There's a huge, uh, it's a family reunion actually each year out there that, um, is just an enormous event. I mean, several hundred people, you know, show up to this thing every single year. And, uh, there's, you know, there's just an enormous amount of running around that weekend. And that kind of shuts things down in a small little area up there. But as a whole, you know, the, the traffic, the, the people traffic and, and, you know, doesn't affect those years much in the summer. Um, you know, as we roll through the summer, you know, as we roll towards the end of the archery hunt, and some of those bucks start rubbing their velvet off, um, that can switch them up a little bit, you know. So, you know, every buck is kind of an individual. Some of them it doesn't affect at all. And other ones, it'll, it might be the last time you see them for the rest of the year. Um, but as a whole, not really. You know, nothing, nothing really drastically changes it too much um, until they start thinking about those you know, late, late October, November-ish, um, that really makes them pick up and change. You know, granted, you know, granted water holes aren't drying up and this and that, but, uh, but no, they're, they're more or less, you know, if you find them there in, in July, you know, there's a high probability that buck's going to be, you know, right there, right on through. And during that archery hunt, I mean, what is a common, and let's talk about uh, just a common day in A and a common day in B, and let's say that you're in high, you know, fairly high density area, you're not out on some fringe area buck, deer sightings just out glassing around that time of year in A and deer sightings in B in just a rough general number? Um, as in like numbers of deer seen per day? Yeah. You know, it, it uh it varies a lot. I mean, there's areas in 13A where, you know, you get up on the right knob and, you know, you can glass 20 bucks from, from one knob a morning pretty easily. Um, you know, and then there's there's places in 13B where, you know, if that's the buck we've chosen to hunt, um, you know, you may see nothing at all for three days and then and finally see the buck you're after, you know, in a third or fourth day or or maybe are only able to find them every third, you know, second, third, fourth day, something like that. So it, it varies. The densities within the unit, the deer densities within the unit vary um, greatly as well. I mean, there's some higher elevations areas in both in both uh, A and B um, that just hold more deer as a rule, Mount Trumbull, Mount Logan, all the top country of 13A there, um, you know, Black Rock, the, you know, some areas down south. Black Rock is in the northern end of 13B. Um, Trumbull and Logan are in 13A. Um, the Mount Bellenbaugh area, a little higher elevation. You know, you get into you get into more oaks and and some pines and, and just a little bit lusher country. And you know, those congregate there. And and there's just you know so that and then there's and then there's a lot of areas where that you know that density just sends out to downright next to nothing. And uh, you know, which is really at the end of the day where we would really prefer to be is. Uh, is out there where where it's it's tough and it's discouraging to a lot of people which uh not that i want people to be discouraged but but you know tough hunting conditions usually means less pressure and that's just works in our favor so sure 
sure. Absolutely. And and some of these bucks, you know, let's say these bucks that are over 200 inches, it, that time of year, I mean, will they ever be by themselves or, or will they usually be with four or five other bucks? What is the common theme uh, with, with, say, a 220, 230 buck? Will he always have a buddy or two or what's the common there? You know, I would say more often than not, they'll have they'll have a buddy or two with them. Um, you know, what we've seen a lot with, uh, with these big, big, biggest bucks is that a lot of them will have one younger buck with them. Seems to be kind of, kind of something to that, you know, so, somebody else might laugh at that idea, but that's just what I witnessed. Um, you know, is that, is that a lot of these big, these big top end, top end bucks, um, you know, oftentimes they'll just have one younger buck with them and that's it. And, and, and that changes, you know, as, as, as deer use the same water, you know, in the night, they might gang up for a day or, or, you know, they might leave the water and be together for a day and bed once together for a day. But, but eventually that, you know, eventually that older buck in our experience is going to kind of go and do what he wants and where he wants to go, where he feels safe. And, and he usually drags along, you know, some youngster that's, interested in learning how to stay alive probably but uh <laughs> they're yeah they're seldom you know that time of year you know more often than not they've got some company than versus just being completely alone okay two more questions for you one i kind of started out at the beginning of the episode saying i have 14 points i know there's other people in my shoes that's four off a of max um i i think i would be guaranteed an archery tag if you were me with 14 points, would you be applying for the guaranteed archery tag? And and let's also say that I would have the entire time to hunt. Would you do that, or would you continue to go after the rifle tag? That is a very easy answer for me, and uh, okay. and that would be without question. If if I were you, that was the question. I I would apply for the archery hunt, um, no doubt about it. And for for one of the reasons that you listed, and that's that it's the season is long and, and you extended period of time, which is obviously a huge advantage. And then couple that with, uh, with the time of year when these bucks are fairly patternable or at least as patternable as they get in that country. Um, we talked earlier, you know, if you find them in July, you know, odds are very high. They're going to be right there through the archery hunt and, you know, they're not going to wander off, go look for doe. They might, you know, they can get difficult to find, but they're seldom do they leave. Um, and then also, you know, somebody like yourself who would obviously put everything they had into the hunt with the scouting and the, and the shooting of your bow and, you know, the, the quality of your equipment and your physical fitness, all those things that play in, um, you know, somebody like yourself, that's the odds are very, very high that, that over the course of that hunt, you're going to, you're going to kill a big old deer. Um, versus the rifle hunt where, you know, don't get me wrong, still the best rifle hunt on the face of the planet. But there, there's, you know, for guys that uh, that can shoot their bows and will practice and will take the time, I think the odds of targeting a specific buck and staying with them and killing that buck are, are probably quite a bit higher on the, uh, on the archery hunt than the other rifle hunt. Well, that... You were pretty decisive and pretty clear, and you didn't have to think about it very long, and I can appreciate that. Um, 
uh, I'm, I've got a lot of thinking to do between now and when the, uh, the uh, draw is due here, June 10th. Um, and I want to end on, you spoke briefly about the rifle hunt. You talked about targeting an archery buck and, and, and being able to pattern a buck. Um, talk to me a little bit about how you think the, the rifle hunt is going to be this year in B and in A. And do you believe that it will be, one, when, when it's all said and done, do you believe it will be one of the greatest rifle, as far as bucks being harvested, do you think it will be one of the greatest years ever? Um, I do. I, I feel the potential for it to be one of the greatest years, at least in recent history, um, are as high this year, you know, as they're going to, as they're going to get or that they can get, um, you know, for the two main reasons, not only the moisture this year, but the moisture last year, as well as the inventory that we know is out there and still alive and is going to be, you know, taking advantage of all this rain that we've had, um, I do think the potential is there to have just an unbelievable year that uh, that we remember for a long, long time. Um, you know, 13B is obviously going to overshadow 13A just purely from a number standpoint. But 13A, if people have kind of kept track of the, you know, of, of that country from year to year and what's been killed, you know, 13A had had a year that will always be remembered in 2010. Um, by the end of day two, by the end of the second day of the hunt, of the rifle hunt in 13A, there had been 10 bucks over 220 killed in 13A. Um, a number of them over 240, or a number of them over 230, and a couple of them over 240. Um, so, but since then, and 2011 was, was pretty doggone good. We had a pretty good year in 13A in 2011. But since then, it has been, it's been rough in 13a i mean the you know the age class has been you know diminished you know pretty good um we've had some you know below average antler growth years in there the 2012 was was horrendous for antler growth especially on a um but there's been it's been kind of it's been kind of coming back and then these these monsoon seasons that we've been having that uh that get everything healthy um you know, keeps their body conditions coming through the winter good. Um, combined with, um, you know, there, there's just last year, you know, the last few years in 13A, a lot of the bucks have just lived on through for this reason or that, a missed shot or, or couldn't find it when it mattered or whatever it was. But a lot of the bucks have lived through in 13A. And uh, so 13A is going to have the best year that it's had easily since 2011. Um you know, we'll know here shortly, another month or so, exactly how good it's going to be. But, uh, you know, years like this, when that feed is so good and those deer have been so healthy for so long, it's, we're usually always surprised. You know, even though our expectations are, we have great expectations, you know, usually on years like this, we're even surprised even more how good it is. So, you know, 13A is going to have a good year. It might have just a downright, you know, exceptional year. Um, I don't think it'll be another 2010 in 13A, but it's definitely it's definitely coming up. And 13B is really, um, you know, guys can say what they will, but I, I feel that the unit is about as about as loaded with big deer as a guy could ever hope for. Well, there you have it, folks. Uh, 13A, 13B facts uh, from one of the best. Uh, Matt, I want to thank you for being on the show today. 
Um, I want to make sure you have a good uh, chance for people to know how to get a hold of you. Can you tell me, uh, tell the listeners how they can reach you if they want to talk more about the uh, Arizona Strip? Yeah, they can uh, They can reach us through our website, which is a3trophyhunts.com. Um, they can email us at a3trophyhunts at gmail.com. Um, they can call they can call me at area code 928-713-9575. Um, my partners, Jay and Chad, phone numbers are also listed on the website. Um, so we're, we're, we're easy to find. We've got the Facebook thing going on. You know, we're kind of out there and as much, we're as available as we can make it. So, uh, yeah, we're happy to talk to anybody, anytime about hunting that place. We love it. And, and uh, yeah, we look forward to talking to anyone. Awesome, Matt. I want to thank you for being on, and I want to wish you the best. And um, I'd like to check in with you uh, uh, later this summer and just get a tab, keep tabs, and see how things are going. And I appreciate you being a supporter of the podcast, and and uh, just uh, want to uh, you know commend you on the work that you've done uh, with all the big bucks that you guys have killed, and lots of happy clients. And you guys do a great job. And uh, kudos to you on that and and uh, thanks for coming on and and sharing an hour with us and i just appreciate it well thank you very much jay we appreciate the opportunity to come on podcast and we're happy to do it anytime and uh we can't thank you enough and we wish you the best this season as well all right buddy sounds good i probably won't be able to sleep after all of what you told me but uh i've got a lot of thinking to do and uh Look forward to seeing what you guys dredge up this year, and uh, uh, best of luck to you, and we'll be chatting at you, okay? Yes, sir. Sounds good, Jay. Thanks. All right. Take care. Okay. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Jay Scott Outdoors Western Big Game Hunting and Fishing Podcast, brought to you by GoHunt.com Insider. Research faster, hunt more. Go to GoHunt.com forward slash insider and join today.